You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. All right, I'm going to welcome you back to your seats now. If you guys want to grab some last pastries or coffee, come on back. As you do so, if you want to open in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, sorry, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. That's where we're going to be. So Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. If you don't own a Bible, we have some hardback black Bibles back on the table there. Feel free to grab one of those. Use it today. And if you don't own one, you can actually keep that. And that's our gift to you. We also, uh, we gave away all of our initial order of Ephesians scripture journals. So we ordered some more. So if you haven't gotten one or if you're looking for one, uh, there are a handful more back on the table. So feel free to go back and grab one of those. Uh, so Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. So today's passage marks a pretty significant transition in the book of Ephesians. And as we continue in our series, which we've called Foundations of Faith from Death to Life in the book of Ephesians, we're going to see what it means to live like people who are alive and are not dead. That's what we're going to see for the rest of this. Paul's going to give us this picture of what does it actually mean to be alive people. When I got married to my wife, Megan, uh, I was an overcommitted person. So I was gone, I don't know, like three to four times a week at night, and I was just doing so many different things. And a few months into our marriage, at, at some point, Megan sat me down. We were having this conversation. She just said, Jeremy, you're married now. We need to spend some time together. You can't live like a single person anymore. And she was right. I, I was married now. That meant something different about the way that I was supposed to behave. And that's really the framework that Paul's using in our passage today. What he wants to say is, you're alive now. You're no longer dead. You're alive. So live like somebody who is alive. Or in the words of our passage, who is called in Christ. And so in our passage, what we're going to see is that Paul introduces this new paradigm. Your identity in Christ informs your behavior in Christ. And then immediately he applies it to our conduct toward one another. That's the first way he applies this paradigm. And so we're going to read from Ephesians 4. If you have a copy of God's Word, you can open it and read along with me, or it'll be on the screen. But go ahead and stand as I read God's Word. Ephesians 4, chapters 1 through 6. Sorry. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. We're not reading all six chapters. Okay, it says this. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and sit down and pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift it is to us as your people. And now as we open it, we ask for your help. Help us to see that we are alive, that we've been called in Christ. And that means something for the way that we live in this world. God, would you open our eyes that we would behold the wondrous things found here in your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I spent the first six years out of undergrad working in higher education, and during that time, uh, I had the privilege of working on this special team at North Dakota State University that was designed to help rehabilitate students who were near suspension, have an opportunity to continue as students and graduate eventually. And uh, I I was mentoring this one particular student who had 
abused drugs at several points, and so he was at the point of suspension. And this young man had internalized an identity that he was a drug user. And as I mentored him through the program, he struggled to believe that he could be anything other than that. And what happened is, is his behavior, drug use, began to inform his identity, drug user. And once he had internalized that identity, he did not believe that his behavior could change, even as I talked him through it over and over again. And sadly, he failed out of the program, and I lost touch with him. I don't know what happened with him, and uh, he comes to my mind every so often. And the reality is, this is true for so many young people who end up with similar things happening. They have a behavior, and as a result of that behavior, then they're haunted by identities that form in their mind, and they feel stuck by this pattern and this identity that they just want to break free from. And it isn't just negative behavior that this happens with, but it also happens with other areas of life. Think about someone who goes to school, for example, to study something like carpentry, and they get a job as a carpenter, and then that profession begins to inform their identity. And this is in some ways why so many people retire and have this identity crisis, because what they did has become for them who they are. And if we think about that paradigm now, apply that to our spiritual identity. We've been trained by the world to think that this is the way the paradigm goes. I sin, behavior, and therefore I am a sinner, identity. And so then we try to combat that by being perfect, behavior, so that we can be perfect in our identity. But if you have any self-awareness at all, then you know that you can never be perfect. And then that creates a problem. What do we do then? Do we succumb to the identity of a sinner or is there a different path? Well, what we see actually in the scriptures is that because of our identity in Christ, our identity is not based on our behavior. It is based on the behavior of Jesus. And so because Jesus changes the paradigm, we can live differently. And here's the message of the sermon then. With that in mind, that framework in mind, here's the message of the sermon. Our calling in Christ, identity, means that we must be committed to unity through compassion and conviction, behavior. Identity informs behavior. And our identity is now based around the behavior of Jesus. So now our identity in him informs our behavior. And in our passage, Paul's going to apply this paradigm then to our conduct toward others, what we said, unity through compassion and conviction. And so here's our outline today. We'll see three aspects of our unity. The first is that we are united in Christ. Second, we are united through compassion and conviction. And third, we are united because of our calling. First, we are united in Christ. Our passage begins here with the word therefore, and this is a really helpful linking word for us. If you want to be a good Bible reader and you see the word therefore, you should ask yourself, well, what is it there for? And as cheesy as that sounds, it's actually really helpful. And here, Paul is wanting to connect everything that he had just said in chapters 1 through 3 with everything that he's about to say throughout the rest of the book. And think about it this way. If you've ever been to a hotel with those, one of those linking doors, you know, the ones that connect one room to the other, I used to love those rooms when my family would get them growing up. And I just thought those room, that door was always such a mystery, you know, like what's on the other side? It's like this secret passage. I love those doors. Well, in this way, our, kind of think about our passage like this. Verse 1 is that linking door, okay? In one side, one room, the first room is chapters 1 through 3. And then on the other side, the other room is chapters 4 through 6. But this is important. That second room, it, it doesn't have its own entrance. 
It can only be accessed through the connecting door. You only get the instructions of chapters four through six through the identity that we've received in chapters one through three. Therefore, Paul says, because of everything that I have written to you, I now urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And the first way that he applies our calling is in our conduct toward others. That's noteworthy. Our calling is expressed relationally. Stop and just think about how significant that is. Paul has spent three chapters unpacking our identity in Christ. We were dead, but now we are alive. We were strangers and aliens in the world, but now we are citizens of God's kingdom. The mystery that was hidden for the ages has now been revealed in Christ, that through faith and not through works, we can be saved. And because of that calling, because of that calling in Christ, we should express that in our conduct toward others. We see this in verses two through three. With humility and gentleness, with patience, in love, bearing with one another, and in peace, maintaining unity. Notice the word maintain there. We maintain things that already exist. Maintenance is different than creation. We maintain something that already exists, and we maintain it because we don't want it to devolve in chaos without that maintenance. And the peace and the unity of the Spirit, it already exists in us. It was given to us in Christ. It's part of our identity now. But we are called to maintain that unity. It means that it requires some work for us. We have to do something to maintain that unity. And unity is the sort of thing that will erode without active maintenance. And in this way, our identity, we are now united in Christ, informs our behavior. Maintain that unity. Our calling is also expressed in our unity then. So it's expressed relationally and in our unity. And Paul emphasizes that unity in verses four through six. And just look here how many times he uses the word one. I have them highlighted on the screen. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is not just superficial unity based on shallow motives. This is deep unity based on who we are in Christ. Now, we've experienced the disunity of a culture that is torn apart by political ideologies. Several of us have experienced the disunity of families that are broken by selfishness and by sin. And as we watch that all happen, we can feel our desire. We long for it to stop. We want unity. But unity is not something that we achieve just by wanting conflict to stop. Unity is not something that comes as just a reaction against something else. It is a movement, something we move toward. And for those who follow Jesus, unity is found in our shared identity. We see several aspects of that. We have the same Trinitarian God. Paul references the Trinity over and over in Ephesians. It shows up here as well. There's one Spirit, verse 4, one Lord, which is a reference to Jesus the Son, verse 5, and one Father, verse 6. We're united through the same baptism. And this is a reference to the death that we died in Christ and the life that we now have in Him. We are united through the same hope to which we've been called. Now, this unity is not uniformity. The next thing that Paul's going to talk about, we'll we'll look at this next week, is that we've been given various gifts and meant to serve the church. The unique roles that we will each play, each of our various contributions, they serve to mature us as people. Here at River City Church, we're not asking you to just be clones of one another. 
You don't have to look a certain way or dress a certain way or express your faith in a certain way. There is unity in our diversity together. And the one faith that we have in Christ, it has enough substance to it to maintain unity even in our differences. This one calling that we have in Christ, it has enough gravitas for our church family to orbit around it in unity and in love. And one of the primary ways we make, to the, or we make visible to the world around us the invisible, that we ha- invisible faith that we have in Christ is actually through unity, through our relationships, through how we conduct ourselves toward one another in humility and patience, gentleness, love, and peace. And this is the mark of maturity that Paul wants to highlight first. Now, he's going to talk about other ways that our identity informs our behavior. He's going to talk about fighting the desires of the flesh and the importance of hard work and how we have this kind of biblical vision of marriage and parenting. But the first application that he wants to give about our identity is in our conduct toward others. And that's really important because we have a habit of elevating other things, prioritizing other things as marks of maturity. We don't prioritize humility, gentleness, patience, love, peace, and unity. And let me suggest three other things that we often elevate and celebrate as even more important as marks of faith. Now, there are probably others, but I'll offer three. The first is dynamic experiences. We love great experiences. We want to be moved deep inside of us. And that's not actually a bad thing, right? I actually, I want you to leave this place today encouraged. I want you to feel lighter. I want you to be renewed in Christ. I want that to be a good experience. But we tend to equate experience with maturity. And so the most passionate, the most expressive, the most intense person must be the most mature, The second thing we do is we equate radical mission with maturity. We love to celebrate people who do radical things, who make great sacrifices, who risk it all for the mission. And so often we elevate Christian workers because of their vocation and not because of their character. Missionaries must be mature simply because they're missionaries, we think to ourselves. Those who serve the homeless and the refugees, they must be mature because they're sacrificing. Now, those aren't bad things. Those are actually good things. But is radical mission itself the highest mark of maturity? The third thing we will often elevate as a mark of maturity is well-developed theology. Knowing theological concepts, being able to divine theological terms, this itself does not make someone a mature Christian. And I have met plenty of Christians who know a lot of theology, but are not patient and kind and loving. 19th century pastor D.L. Moody once said, if a man doesn't treat his wife right, I don't want to hear him talk about Christianity. And that's not just true in that area of life. This is true in many areas of life. I don't care about how much you've sacrificed, how much theology you know, or how dynamic your experiences are. If you do not treat your wife right or your husband right, your neighbor, your fellow Christian, those that you interact with, then you have failed to listen to the first way that we are called to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And one of the reasons for this distortion is because we have elevated competency over character in the Western church. These things are out of sync. If you think of these things as competency-oriented things, experiences, mission, theology, you see what I mean. And for decades, we've elevated competent leaders that lacked the character necessary for their positions, and it's made a mess of things. Here at River City Church, we want to take Paul seriously. He urges us to walk worthy of our calling, 
And the first way he applies this is in our conduct toward others. The second aspect of our unity is that we are united through compassion and conviction. As a church, one of our values is this combination of compassion and conviction. You'll see it on the banner here. It's the third one down, compassion and conviction. Now, even though compassion and conviction, these words are not in our passage, we see the relationship between them here. So let's first talk about compassion. Biblical compassion is a concern for others because of the compassion that God has shown us. God's compassion is a common theme throughout the Bible, and the word is sometimes translated as mercy. Sometimes you'll see it translated mercy, sometimes as compassion. We see it, for example, in Exodus 34, when God relents from punishing Israel from their rebellion in the wilderness. God had chosen them from among the nations. He had rescued them from Egypt. He had provided for them in the wilderness. They had committed to the covenant with God that they have no other gods besides the Lord. And almost immediately, they make a golden calf to try and worship. Now Moses intercedes on their behalf, appealing to God's character and God's reputation. And God does not destroy them Because, as it says in chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, God is a God who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And then throughout the Old Testament, what we see is God calls his people to be compassionate toward others because God has been compassionate toward them. Compassion in Jesus is perfectly displayed. At least eight times it says in the Gospels that Jesus was moved with compassion toward others. And in some of Jesus' most well-known parables, the father has compassion on the prodigal son who returns. The Samaritan has compassion on the man who is left for dead. The king has compassion on his servant when he forgives a great debt. Biblically, compassion and mercy, they're not the product of the recipient's worthiness. It is the result of the character and the worthiness of the one who offers compassion. God is not compassionate with us because we deserved it. And our compassion toward others is not based on whether we think they are worthy of it or not. Compassion is a willingness to understand the other person's situation, to withhold judgment long enough to understand their point of view, their perspective and their experience, their needs and their pain, and then to respond in compassion and grace and forgiveness, to respond in humility and love and peace. Not in a condescending way, but in a way that brings life. Now, before we jump into our text again, I actually want to go to the end of chapter 4, because Paul uses uh, another related word in verse 32. And note this word, tender-hearted. He says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another out of Christ, or as God in Christ forgave you. And the word tender-hearted here means to be easily moved to compassion. A tender-hearted person is easily moved to compassion toward others. And when we have experienced the tender-hearted compassion of Jesus toward us, expressed in God's forgiveness in Christ, this results in forgiveness toward others, to be kind and to be tender-hearted. The unity that God desires, that is consistent with our calling in Christ, is expressed in compassion toward others. And that compassion is seen then in the conduct that Paul's talking about in verses two through three. Humility, gentleness, patience, love, peace, and unity. To walk in a manner worthy of our calling means to live with the compassion of Christ toward others. But there's another side to this. So we'll talk about conviction, because this is not compassion that will lead to compromise. It is compassion with conviction. 
And we'll see this in verses four through six. The unity that we're called to is the result of our shared calling and our conviction that there is one body, one spirit, one calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. This is really important for us to see because unity is not something that happens when two people just look at each other and say, want to have unity? We should just have some unity. It doesn't work like that. Unity is, like so many of the best things in life, something that comes as a byproduct of something else. And conviction is one of them. If we want to have unity, we need to know what we have unity around. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Pursuit of God, wrote this. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to one another? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard with, or which each one must individually bow. So also 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God and to strive for closer fellowship. It is in our conviction that Christ is the one Savior and Lord who can offer us the one true hope for life that we find our unity. Unity cannot happen simply by trying to flatten all of our disagreements into nothing as if they do not exist. That won't work. But if we find our unity in Christ around our faith in Him, then through the unity of the Spirit, we can work through disagreements and differences. In fact, we can come to see that our varied gifts are actually a blessing to the church. Now, there's an idea of tolerance today that wants us to think that unity is found through a lack of conviction, not through conviction. And we hear this in phrases like, speak your truth, live and let live, just let people do whatever they want. But that eventually breaks down. It reveals itself for the fiction that it is, because every cultural or ideological group has certain convictions around which they have gathered and united. A simple way to illustrate this is to think about uh, someone who might want to join Greenpeace and at the same time deny global warming or our need to reduce our carbon footprint. That would never happen because Greenpeace has unity as an organization around their shared conviction that we need to protect the biodiversity of the world and we need to prevent pollution. They're united around that. You can't be part of it and deny their basic tenets. We see this in popular culture all the time as well, as the same voices who cry for freedom to live your truth will cancel anyone who crosses the wrong boundary. This is especially true for anyone who crosses the line of the progressive sexual ethic. And I'm pointing this out because unity cannot happen without conviction. Whether it be unity of Greenpeace or whether it be unity around the progressive sexual ethic or the unity that we have in our calling to Christ, the question we must answer is what convictions will we maintain unity around? And will we hold those convictions with compassion? Because if you want compassion without conviction, then what you'll get is compromise. And if you want conviction without compassion, then what you'll get is cruelty. However, if we seek compassion and conviction, then we will live like Christ in the world. The third aspect to our calling or to our unity is because of our calling in Christ. And let's all just admit, it is hard to live with both compassion and conviction well. It is hard to do that like Jesus. And one of the reasons is because we so often make compassion, con compassion contingent on whether we think someone else is worthy of it. 
Because we get into this mode of thinking that the reason God was compassionate to us is because we think we were worthy of it. That is not what the Bible says. We forget that the compassion we received from Christ was based on his worthiness and not ours. And the framework that Paul uses in verse 1 helps us in this. When he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Paul wants them to reflect on their call for their conduct to be consistent with that calling then. And this framework is so important for us to get right, because if we do not get it right, we're at risk of being some of the most insecure people in the world. And insecure people cannot live with compassion and conviction. And sadly, Christians are often some of the most insecure people in the world. We don't need to be, but we are. And let me tell you why. Because if we get enough of the Bible to understand that God is holy and that we are sinful, but not enough of the gospel to understand that God has made us worthy in Christ, that he's done something about it, then we will be deeply insecure. You don't need a theology degree to understand that the Bible gives us a picture of God that is majestic and powerful and wise, infinitely worthy of glory and praise. And at the same time that we are limited in our wisdom and our strength, we make mistakes, we hurt people, we sin. And if you stop and think about this for a second, if you have an increasing awareness of God's holiness and an increasing awareness of our sinfulness, of God's infinite worthiness and the depth of our unworthiness, then what will that do to you? That's a scary thing. And that's why I said Christians are sometimes the most insecure people. And that is why Christians can be notoriously fake and phony with others and why we respond in anger and not peace at times, why we respond in judgment and not forgiveness at times. Because when you know that you are not worthy, when you're afraid that others will discover that you're not, then you'll do whatever you can to appear worthy. And so we have a tendency to reduce God's holiness. By reducing God's worthiness, trying to make ourselves feel better, but that's not the solution. That will never help you. It will not liberate you from your problem. In fact, it will make it worse. The other thing that we do is minimize our sin. We hide from our unworthiness by performing for others or by blaming others. We minimize our unworthiness by pretending that we're okay. We fear what will happen when we're honest about our sin. And so we hide what we can and we try to make the rest sound better than it actually is. But deep down, we know that we have sin. We know our rebellion. We know how we treat others. We know how we reject God. Deep down, we are acutely aware of our unworthiness. And do you see how that creates a problem for us? We grow insecure when we get enough of the Bible to see an infinitely worthy God and a remarkably unworthy people, but not enough of the Bible to know that God has done something about it. And his remedy to our problem is that he has called us in Christ but Jesus came, he came as the only one who was truly worthy. He lived with perfect compassion and conviction. In compassion, he looked to the multitudes who were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd and he fed them and he taught them about the coming kingdom. In conviction, Jesus confronted the religious leaders who had made a mockery of God's temple. In compassion and conviction, Jesus liberated the least and the last and the lost and then he called them to go and sin no more. In compassion and conviction, Jesus died as though he was unworthy so that he could make us worthy. 
and he has called us to himself. If you have responded to the call of Christ, then you are now made worthy by his blood. You are infinitely worthy in Christ. The gap between God's infinite worthiness and the depth of our unworthiness has been redeemed. We don't need to be insecure. We should be the most secure people in the world because our identity as called people is as a worthy people, not based on our conduct, but on the conduct of Christ. And so when Paul says that we should walk in a manner worthy of our calling, it is not to make us worthy, but because we have been made worthy in Jesus. And the way that is expressed in life is through compassion and conviction toward others as we pursue unity in Christ. And so your compassion toward others is never contingent upon your assessment of their worthiness because God's compassion toward you is not based on your worthiness. Now, that doesn't mean that you need to compromise your conviction any more than it means that you should have com- or conviction without compassion. I've heard one Christian uh, defend their lack of compassion, or I should say more than one Christian defend their lack of compassion because they feel like they need to maintain their conviction. They're saying, I'm just being a prophetic voice to my culture, they'll say. They deserve it because of how foolish they are will be the excuse. But based on my reading of the Bible, a lack of compassion is not based on conviction, but the absence of conviction. If you're going to maintain the truth of the Bible, if you're truly going to maintain the conviction of the Bible, then it demands that you live with compassion. Not compassion and compromise, any more than conviction with cruelty. But like our Savior, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling means to live with compassion and conviction. And so often, our cultural moment wants to frame relationships and issues in a way that will require us to surrender our conviction or sacrifice our compassion, but we reject that dichotomy. We do not need to choose between them. God did not express compassion because we were worthy, but precisely because we were unworthy, he sent a worthy substitute. He did not sacrifice his conviction for his own holiness by turning a blind eye on our sin, but he executed the justice his holiness demands by receiving the worthy sacrifice of Christ. And because that is the calling to which we've been called, Paul urges his readers to walk in a manner worthy of that call. Our conduct toward others, behavior, flows from our calling in Christ, identity. And that will be the framework that Paul employs throughout the rest of the book. And rather than turn these next three chapters, chapters four through six, into legalism for you, we're going to continue to remind you of this framework. Identity in Christ leads to conduct that is consistent with that call. And the first way that Paul wants to see that expressed in the life of a believer is in our conduct toward others, as we maintain unity in the spirit through compassion and conviction. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.